If you have your Bibles, you can go to John, John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the story there of Jesus and the woman of Samaria. I'm just going to move this over here a little bit. On occasion, as a friend or as a pastor, I get involved in a conversation with a married couple and who are going through a difficult time. And whether they've told me or whether it's an answer to some questions I ask, um, often the problem is the usual suspects, poor communication, unclear expectations. And so what I've learned is to uh, get them to ask each other uh, or give each other a very simple request. Um, I found that it's good for them to have an early win, and if they really do want to fix their relationship um, and they want to work on it, this is something that can have an immediate impact. And the statement really is this, to say to each other, it would really help me if you would, and then fill in the blank, like what what is really important to you in your relationship right now? It would really help me if you would do this. And and as they communicate in a very clear one expectation, um, it's amazing sometimes how there's clarity that begins to give some hope that, yeah, we we can fix this. It's difficult for men and women to get along in a relationship. Uh, Given our differences, that that can be a challenge. And it's difficult in other relationships too, whether it's intergenerational, when you have someone who's much older than someone else trying to understand each other and and live in relationship. We, We see on a global scale, it's different for nations to understand and to get along with one another and, and people of different nationalities. There are these challenges given our differences. And so when you think about relating to God, wow, there are differences there. How could we ever relate to him? Now this morning we're here because to begin with, uh, most of us, I assume, have a belief in God. But a belief in God does not mean that we have a right and personal relationship with him or that we could know him. Uh, Just like believing in your favorite celebrity does not mean that you could even have a remote chance of knowing that celebrity and being in a personal relationship with that person. How could we ever, as human beings, have a personal relationship with the infinite, holy, pure, awesome, powerful God? Well, as we read in the book of John, which is called a gospel, which means good news, and as we read the other gospels, which mean good news, we find out that God has made a way for us. And by the time John is finished writing this gospel, we're going to see that the person of Jesus um, is going to go to a cross. He's going to die for people. He's going to rise from the dead because he conquers sin and death. And for those who believe in him, they can have life meaning they can have a relationship with God. Jesus says in a prayer to his Father, this is life eternal, that they might know you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus makes a way for people to have life. But as we look at this conversation this morning between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, we find that Jesus also gives us clues how to live in that life. Clarity. He's going to tell us exactly what God is looking for in our relationship with him. And I'm going to look at it from three different perspectives. Number one, we are all worshipers. Number two, there's a right way to worship. And number three, that right way of worship has much to do with the Holy Spirit. 
So I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to ask God to uh, speak to our hearts this morning as we look at his word. Father, we come before you, and we know, Lord, that as we look at your word, there's so much potential for you to meet with us as we open our hearts to you. And that's what I'm praying for, Lord, that you would just open our hearts to you. And I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would come now and speak through your word and to each one of us to make much of Jesus, bringing glory to you, our Father, in Christ's name, amen. We are all worshipers. If you look at John 4 in the context from... um, Verse 7 on, we see that Jesus is going from Jerusalem to Galilee, and a Jewish person in heading north to Galilee would often avoid Samaria because they really had wanted to have nothing to do with each other. But Jesus purposely goes to Samaria, and it's the middle of the day. There's a well there. He's thirsty. There's a woman there who's of probably poor reputation who's also there. So she comes in the middle of the day, and they have this conversation, this interaction. And Jesus says to her, you know, if you, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for water, and he would give you a water that would well up with inside of you into everlasting life. And she's not sure what to make of this man, and so they begin to discuss worship. As he has pointed out to her that she, she's looking for something in her life, and so she's, she's been, you know, she says, I've got to go talk to my husband. He says, well, you, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is, is not, you're not even married to him. And so in the midst of that, she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So in this exchange with Jesus, the subject of worship comes up because it is one of the defining distinctions between these two groups of people that don't like each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. Our fathers say we worship here, Mount Gerizim. You guys worship in Jerusalem. It's a point of distinction, how they worship. And you can go around the globe. You can even just probably walk through your neighborhood, and there'll be all kinds of points of distinction around how we worship that define people. Baha'i, Mormonism, um, Jehovah's Witness, Hinduism, Judaism, Sikhism, Christianity, Spiritism. Worship is somehow instinctive to us. Recognized religions make that obvious, but as you think about what worship entailed to a Jew and to to many religions, I think we can think how that also applies to almost any aspect of life. Think about it. In worship, you give honor. In John 4, the word worship is proskuneo, and it means to give honor, to give reverence, to pay homage. It even includes the idea of, of like going prostate before the object that you worship. So we give honor in worship. We dedicate ourselves to it. You, you, you make a decision that this is something you're going to value. It's going to be important to you, and you dedicate yourself to it. You sacrifice to it. So the Jews would, would sacrifice animals as was prescribed to them in their relationship, in their worship to God. And then you have community around that. And so the Jews, some of the sacrifices they made, they, would, they were uh, required to actually eat those sacrifices in community. So there's honor, there's dedication, there's sacrifices, there's community around it. And when you think about those elements, you can see how worship can apply to more than just something that we understand as religious. A lot of you know that I enjoy sports, and I am a Canucks fan. And um, they are, some of them, 
you know, they're, they're good fans, but if you want to see really fanatic fans, you just go down south to Seattle and you go to a Seattle Seahawks game sometime, which I have done. Now, these guys are fanatic. They worship. They pay honor. They dedicate themselves. They paint their faces. They paint their bodies. They, they buy the T-shirts, the jackets, the gloves, the toques. It all has Seahawks on them. They, they have flags. You go drive by a house. It's got the 12 flag. It's all about dedication. They make sacrifices. If they want to go to a game, it's going to cost them a lot of money, like $200, $300, $400 for one ticket to see the game. And they'll sacrifice by standing. Some of these people stand the whole game in, in sometimes very cold uh, northwest weather. They'll dedicate themselves. Like, who, who would do that? And they have community. So they have a tailgate party before the game. They come hours before the game, and they sit around their tailgates, and they, they talk about the game. And then afterwards, they go to the bar, and they talk about the game over a few beers. You see how, how, how worship can be in anything in our life. And, and most of this, t- this time, it happens on a Sunday service. And I've been to a couple of games, and seldom have I seen a church as dedicated to how these fans worship. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says this, human beings, by their very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. We worship. We are worshipers. Secondly, now there is a right way to worship. So in this conversation, Jesus says to her in verse 21 of John 4, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. If you read the Bible, you read in the Old Testament that God revealed himself to a people group, first to a man, Abraham, and his family, and that family became a nation, Israel. And as you follow God's revelation to Israel, it flows through to his son in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who is born of Jewish parents. So salvation is of and from the Jews. God's plan for his humanity was revealed through them. And in contrast to the Jews, the Samaritans did not believe all the Old Testament. They only believed the first five books of the Bible were inspired by God. So they rejected the rest And they chose a different place to worship. Jews were directed to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshiped in a place called Mount Gerizim. Now, Jesus could have said to her, good for you. You know, um, I'm glad you worship. I'm glad you have a disposition towards God. And that's really how our society would often speak to one another as we discuss the differences in our belief. Good for you. I'm glad you can believe in something. That's not how Jesus speaks. Jesus says, no, you worship what you do not know. In other words, your worship is wrong. Is that what love does? Is Jesus loving? Yes, love tells the truth if something is wrong because not all roads lead to God. In his book, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, the now deceased uh, Nabil Qureshi, he documents... um, his story of traveling from faith in Islam to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And it's a, it was a long, difficult journey for him as God began to dismantle his long-held traditions. But along with his traditions was, as he held this belief in Islam, was this love and respect for his parents. And so it was a long journey for him to be able to wrestle through and count the cost of what it would be for him to embrace the Jesus of Christianity. But he had to. He was compelled by the truth. But in doing so, his father told him, it's like you have ripped the very backbone out of my body. His mother said, son, you have betrayed us. And it deeply wounded him. But he knew in the end, he had to, he had to go with he discovered to be right and true. Jesus says the worship at Jerusalem has been right, but even that is about to change. This is an hour. The time has come when there's going to be a new kind of worship. The old is past. The new has come. Do you remember, uh, for those of you that are older, or maybe some of you that are younger, you've seen pictures of your parents. Do you remember those pants that flared out at the bottom? And it made you look like you had elephant legs, you know, nice and thick, right to the feet. Do you remember those? Uh, Guys, do you remember those fuzzy caterpillars uh, that used to be on the lips, you know, those great big thick mustaches? Do you remember those phones that were like bricks that you could get a workout just holding them to the ear? Do you remember those? Have you ever seen those, what they look like? If you haven't, they make great doorstops now. There was a time for those, but the time for those has gone. They're no longer appropriate. Jesus is saying there's, a, there's something new now. It's new for the Samaritans. It's different for the Samaritans, but it's also new for the Jew. It's new for all people. A new kind of worship has come. What Jesus is saying is so radical, uh, it'd be like telling the Muslims that Mecca is no longer valid Jesus is getting it to the core of people's very identity and what they worship. In John chapter 4, verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How are they to worship him? What does God want from us? How are we to worship him? The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is what God's looking for. And in case we didn't get it, Jesus repeats it in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is like a clear, concise expectation. And we can hear it and know it. We're all worshipers. There's a right way to worship Right worship has much to do with the Holy Spirit. And let me say in brackets, right worship is Trinitarian. Let me unpack that for us. In Jesus' discussion of worship with the Samaritan woman, he addresses, he he directs worship to the Father. He could have directed worship to himself, but he doesn't do that. In fact, in a few verses later, he's going to reveal to this woman that he is the Messiah, like he's the promised one of the Old Testament. It would have been, I think, so easy for him to say, see who I am? Worship me. But he doesn't do that. He directs worship to the Father. Three times he uses that term for God. The Father is seeking this kind of worship. 
Worship the Father. It's, it's a personal term. It's a family term of intimacy that not only Jesus shares, but by implications, he's saying, you, you, can, you can be part of family, and you can worship God in this intimate relationship with him. God is your Father, too. It is to the Father that worship is to occur in spirit and in truth. So we need to know what that means. Well, let's begin with truth. If you were to ask people today, what, what is truth? Uh, some people would tell you, well, we can never know. That's the postmodern understanding of truth. Uh, others will give you a different definition. I mean, it's always a subject of, of great conversation. If you want to have a great dialogue, have, you know, ask somebody, what is truth? That question is actually asked in John's gospel. It's asked by the Roman governor Pilate as he has in his hands the human authority to do what he wants with Jesus to have him crucified or to have him set free. He asked the question, what is truth? John has placed that strategically in his gospel because, you see, John has told us a lot about truth. In his introduction to his good news in what we call the prologue, in verses 1 to 17, he talks about how Jesus is full of grace and truth, verse 14. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he talks about how truth comes through Jesus. Later in chapter 8, he'll talk about how if people abide in Jesus' words, they'll be set free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And it's pretty clear from John's perspective, truth has a lot to do with Jesus. But he takes it like another step further in John chapter 14, when he, off the lips of Jesus, he quotes Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He is the embodiment of truth. When Pilate asks the question, by the time the reader has got there in John's gospel, you already know the answer. The truth is Jesus. So many times I'm in the outdoors and I find myself worshiping God. I was thinking about this last night so this weekend on uh, Friday night and Saturday, I was in Washington, and I was in um, outdoors where there was lots of pine trees. It was just, I mean, I did think it was Christmas. It was so beautiful. The snow, where I was, it had snowed, and the snow was still there. It was resting on these pine trees, and they, like, they were like majestic as they just stretched out really high into the sky, and I just, it caused my heart to want to worship give praise to the creator a, a week ago, what a different scenario. You know, it, I mean, it wasn't blazing hot, but it was a beautiful fall Saturday, and I managed to get out for a cycle and go for a, a, a ride in an area I haven't been before, and I, I found, I discovered this place where I could overlook the whole Fraser Valley, like the Fraser River running right out to Vancouver, and I was just struck with awe, and I found myself again just worshiping. God for what he has made. But in John's gospel, we, we find a greater revelation of God, something even more magnificent. And that is the person of Jesus Christ who John says has come to declare God to us. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing God in human flesh. We're beholding the glory of God. How appropriate it is to worship him when we see Jesus. 
N.T. Wright in his book, For All God is Worth, states, what I have experienced personally, if your idea of God, if your idea of the salvation offered in Christ is vague or remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-formed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty and the more you will find worship welling up in, within you. I've found that in my own personal life as I take the time to read the scriptures and I read God's story from the beginning to the end and I in particular see the life of Jesus and as I pay attention to what's going on in his life and as I begin to understand more and more about who God is as revealed in Jesus and what he has done for me through his son Jesus, I find myself wanting to worship and worship and worship more. How appropriate it is for us to search the scriptures, to pay attention to the details of Jesus' life, and to learn more about what this means, to dive deeper into his truth so that we can know and love and worship him better. I'm gonna suggest to you this is what people do that love each other. They pay attention to the details in one another's life. So when a, a wife comes home and she's just had her hair done and she comes home and she asks that question, do you notice anything different? It doesn't have to be a man's nightmare. Well, why is she asking that question? She's saying, do you care about me? Do, do you love me and care enough about me to, to notice something different? Let me ask this this morning, have you noticed anything new, anything different about Jesus lately? As you've searched the scriptures and as you've paid attention and looked at his word, have you found something new to rejoice in him, to celebrate, to worship? Because you're knowing him better. We have seen true worship is about the Father and it's in Jesus. That's Jesus, the truth. What else is there? Spirit. Spirit. I have said a right, a right worship has much to do with the Holy Spirit. The reason why I wanted to emphasize that as we worship the Father, as we worship through the Son, is because so often the third person of the Godhead, we neglect. It's like the ignored member of the family. But God is Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. Truth has an accompanying partner. As we worship in spirit and in truth. When the New Testament was written, there's no capitalization around words like spirit. And so it's not like John wrote when he's saying in spirit and truth that he capitalized spirit. So we would know he's specifically referring to the Holy Spirit. As people study this passage, there's three different options, understanding of what that word spirit could mean. First of all, there's the the idea of an attitude, that you, you're worshiping with the right attitude of fear and reverence, and certainly that could be true, but I think that's insufficient. John could be writing about the human spirit. That's part of our constitution, how we are made. It's at the very core of us. We know elsewhere in Scripture it says, for the body without the spirit is dead, so it speaks of that which is alive in us. And using John's uh, use of the word spirit, three times he uses it that way in the obvious sense of the human spirit. Jesus was troubled in spirit or groaned in spirit. When he died in his humanity, the scripture says he gave up his spirit. 
But the majority of John's use of that word spirit refers to the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Last week, when we looked at John chapter 3 and Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new birth, who gives new life, makes us come alive. So you can't even worship God without being born again. Your, your worship cannot be right without an experience of new birth that's only made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we read on in John's gospel in, in chapter 7 and, and, and even what we've just seen in chapter 4, Jesus talks with people about a living water that he wants to give them. So the, to, to the Samaritan woman, he says, if you would know who you were talking to, you would ask of him and he would give you this living water. Next week, we're going to look at John chapter 7. And when Jesus is at a feast and at the end of it, he proclaims, he that believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John actually tells us what he means. He says, Jesus spoke this of the Holy Spirit who has not yet been poured out. When Jesus says God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth, I think it's all. It's our attitude, of course, of fear and reverence. Of course, it's our human spirit, our emotions, every, the inward part of us engaged in worship to God. But I think most certainly it is that we have been born again by the Holy Spirit. We've been birthed to be worshipers, and now the Holy Spirit, in an ongoing relationship with him, is to empower us to worship God rightly so that we can worship God at the level of his nature, which is spirit. Right worship is Trinitarian. All of the Trinity are worthy of worship. Each person can be worshiped for their role and their person. We see the Godhead honoring one another as we read the scriptures. But in general, as Jesus points out to us, it's directed to the Father, made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus made possible by the Holy Spirit who births in us new life and then empowers us on an ongoing basis to worship God in spirit and truth. Yes, as we worship the Father, spirit and truth must go together. We cannot neglect the spirit who is holy. I'm gonna encourage us as we think about this in two responses. First of all, we need to get rid of our false worship. The Samaritan woman, if she was going to embrace Jesus, had to leave her way, had to leave her way of worshiping to embrace the new. We're reading the Old Testament. So much of what is written is that God's own people, the children of Israel, were embracing false worship, false idols, so that their worship could, be not, could not be right and true in their worship of the one true God. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 7 where the, the, the presence of God is symbolized in the ark. It had been taken away and, and given into the, their enemies' hands, the Philistines, but now the ark has come back, and for like 20 years, it's, it's not in its rightful place within Israel, and the people are mourning about, you know, about this, and they're seeking God, and and, and, and Samuel has to come to them and say, if you're seeking God, there's something else you got to do. You got to get rid of your false idols. See, they, were, they had both going on at the same time. 
God is so glorious, so amazing, so beautiful, so powerful, so awesome. There is nothing in our lives that should have any place of any competition for God, for what we value in our life, for what we dedicate ourselves to. Nothing should compete with our dedication to God and our honor of him. Nothing should compete with our sacrifice. We need to get rid of those things that would be false idols in our life. You know, in my own personal life, there's, there's areas that I'm, I'm aware of that they can, be, they can begin to creep into my life and take way too much place of prominence uh, in my life. And for me, one of those things is sports. I, I was raised as an athlete, always involved in, in sports, and it was a big part of my life. And sports can be beautiful. I mean, I, I think it's amazing when somebody does something well with the gifts that God has given them, and they've, they've, they've sacrificed a lot to be good at what they do. But sports cannot rule my life. I have to be careful about how much time I give to it, how much value I give to it. And each of us has things in our lives that want to creep in and, and take a place of way more importance to compete with God. What do you need to forsake in order for your worship to be true? See, this paves the way. This makes room for the second thing that we need to do, and that is simply this. Embrace the Holy Spirit. We need to embrace the Holy Spirit. That's why I want to encourage us in this morning. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, as Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia, he says, having begun in the Spirit... Are you now made perfect? Are you now brought to maturity in the flesh? See, all of us, to begin our relationship with God, we have, we've been birthed by the Spirit. We've had this experience where God has made us new creations in Christ. But we're not to neglect the Spirit from then going forward. No, the rest of our life is to know God through Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to embrace who he is. In John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask him for this gift. I think he's thinking beyond just salvation and being forgiven. He's thinking about the life that he wants to give her that will flow within her like a well of water springing up into her everlasting life. The life of the spirit. Jesus is saying, if you'd ask for this, oh man, I've got so much that I want to give you. Would you embrace the Holy Spirit? Would you be so hungry and thirsty that you would ask him for it? We honor the Holy Spirit when we acknowledge his presence in the room. We honor the Holy Spirit when we understand his role in the Trinity. When we read about him in scripture, when we pay attention to what the Holy Spirit does and who he is, a person who is God. We honor the Holy Spirit when we receive what he wants to do in our life, which includes the gifts that he wants to give us and the way that he wants to empower us. We honor the Holy Spirit when we do that. Can we embrace the Holy Spirit? I'm going to ask the servers if they would get ready to serve us communion this morning. We have the opportunity to worship God in a way of celebration that Jesus gave us as Jesus was approaching the cross where he would lay down his life for us, knowing what would, would go beyond that, that he would, God would raise him from the dead, that he would conquer sin and death and be able to 
bring forgiveness for us. As Jesus went through that, he sat down with his disciples and he had this meal with them. And he talked about how the bread that he would, that they would share represented his body broken for them. He talked about the cup that they would drink represented his blood that was shed for them for their forgiveness. And that through what he would do, they would experience life. The life that we've talked about today more fully, the life of the Spirit, a life of worship, a life in God. As the elements are passed out, we're just gonna, I'm gonna invite you just to hold on to them and we're gonna take it all together. If you're here today and you don't have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, this is a way, if you're, if you're at that place where you're, you're saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I, I wanna give my life to him, I want this life he has for me and I'm, I'm willing to give him my life so he can live through me, you can enter into that life and you can take the bread symbolizing his body and the cup symbolizing his blood. For the rest of us, as you get the elements and, and you're just holding on to them, uh, can I encourage you just to have a conversation with God? God, is there something I need to let go of in my life? Is there an idol in my life that's way too important that I need to get rid of, Lord? Would you show me? I'm sorry. And you confess that and you repent of that. And then as we worship, know that you're forgiven. Know that you're free. Know that you can ask God then for more of your spirit, Lord. I'm making room for you. And as we worship, uh, he will fill us.